back with another hour of creepy just for you and a little for us. I'm Megan. I'm Dana. And this is Scary Stories to Tell Your Sister. How are you doing this fine February day? Good, good, good. You? I'm good. I have been exhausted this week and I had a really good sleep last night. It's good. Refreshed. I was so tired that I was finishing up research last night and I wanted to rewatch part of a documentary about the, the topic I had chosen. And Abby was doing in the room watching a documentary for a school assignment. And I kept falling asleep mid-sentence typing, and Abby would hear me begin to snore from the other room and would call my phone to wake me back up. And I was like, did I fall asleep again? And she's like, yes. <laughs> that is, that is crazy. Three times. Three times that happened. But I finally went to bed after I was done, and I slept like the dead, and it was great. Can you sleep? E- can you go to sleep easily? It's so funny because I was falling asleep mid-research, but when it was actually time to, like, walk the dog and then go to bed. Also, walking the dog after the intense, like, deep dive again last night was not my favorite thing. But then I was like, I can all awake now. And I was like, no, 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 no. You were falling asleep for the past, like, two hours. You've got to go to bed. So it took me, like, ten minutes to wind down. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think I fell asleep pretty quickly. I could normally fall asleep pretty quickly. I thought I could. Abby falls asleep way quicker than I am. Oh. Because mostly. Because like what I'll do is like when I wind down, I'll listen to either a book on tape or something and then play a game on my phone for like five or ten minutes and then go to bed. But when I'm doing that, like that five or ten minutes of like putzing on my phone, listening to my book, Abby is going to bed. And then I put on the sleep playlist and go to bed. So she's already snoring by the time I'm like done. When you say the sleep playlist, uh, music? Yeah. So I have a sleep, I have a certain playlist that I've created that are like my chill songs because I like music at all times. Not all times, but I really love music. So I've like, curated a playlist of like mellow songs that I love that I just play. And then the, pl- the playlist turns off after a certain amount of time. And yeah, I fall asleep to that. And I got do to- they have words? Yeah. Oh God, see, I can't do that. If I'm going to sleep, I cannot listen to music with words or like a song that has a- like a story in it, so you focus on it. Yeah, it cannot have words, and it cannot have like a repetitive beat. Ray will sometimes play some sort of like meditative music, which is totally fine, but. One time he played a meditative track that had this really repetitive, like, dun, dun, dun. And I knew every time it would come. So I would, like, wait for it. I'd be like, and, like, for me, I cannot fall asleep like that. There's just no, too much. You always, you always had a hard time falling asleep in general, though, too. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I have to have my sound machine on, a shirt usually now. I used to have, a like, an eye mask. But I don't know what happened to it. So I just put a shirt over my eye. 
<laughs> or pillow. And the temperature has to be cool. And my sheets have to be cozy. And do you ever find it hard to go to sleep when you're, when everything is too cleaned? Like, not clean, clean. Like, if I've just showered, shaved, it's especially if I've just shaved, and my sheets are super clean. I don't know why, but it's like, it feels too good and I can't sleep. I have that problem. Last night, I was a little warm under the, like, the blankets were warm already. And I was like, no, because I had been in the bed for a while. Oh, I hate that. So I was like, I like colder sheets that eventually warm up as I'm sleeping. Because if they're warm immediately, then I just kept getting, I get, get, I get, get hotter. You know, if I start out warm, I'm going to get hotter. But so it's like, but if I start out cold, I'll end up at like the beginning temperature, you know? Yes. Yes. I have, we got these, this new bedding from Target. It was a little pricey, but I thankfully didn't have to pay the full price because I had gift certificates and Ray was like, I'll pay the other part of it. So the other part of it. And then I used the gift certificates for the rest, but it is so nice. Like the underside is buttery, soft, yet cool. And then the top is like, it's just like a natural material. It feels like a natural cotton material, you know, but like slightly rough. I don't know how to explain it. Like that natural cotton. Yeah. Linen fiber. Yes. So that's what it feels like. And then I have the, the insert inside that I, that I already had that I put in and it, so it adds a nice, it's it's a good duvet, it's a good duvet cover. It is. It is a duvet cover. And I put another blanket on top because I need that like weight, you know, that extra weight to like smush you, you know? No, I get that. No, no, I do get that. Abby also likes pressure. Yes. That's what I like. I like that too. But not too much, you know? No, not too, too much, but it's nice. It's nice. One time, this is kind of off topic, but one, speaking of pressure, I remember one time I had a panic attack when I was with Rachel. We were, it was for, we were celebrating her birthday, but I can't remember where we were, where we were going or where we were coming from, but we were parked at a gas station and I was having this panic attack and she's like, come here. And she takes her hands. And she pushed them on my chest. Yeah. Like really hard. And oh my God, did that help? Yeah, they have like, like at least for like those kids, they have like these things that are like a sensory sock you put your whole body in. And it's like, so the pressure that goes in there, you know? That's nice. There's like a term for it that people like get the hugs and stuff like that, you know? The people that give hugs? Like when you like when kids are like people people are like stressed and you you give them a hug or something to give them Oh yeah that they need. There's a thing and I can't think of it right now, but it is scientifically proven to help relax the body. It does. It does. And so that's that, Dana. Yeah, and so unlike a nice calming hug, what do we have today that will not be? So this week we actually I called Dana at the beginning of this week and I ended up telling her what I was doing. And it was so funny because when I told her what I was doing, she paused and I'm like, okay, I guess she does not like the topic and I guess I shouldn't do it. And I was like, is that a good topic? And she's like, yep. And I was like, okay, that does not sound very enthusiastic. So, and she's like, okay, the reason I 
responded that way was because I have a very similar topic. So I chose skinwalkers. I can say skinwalker, but I won't. We're not going to use the Navajo term. The actual word for it. So Dana, you want to tell them what you're going to be doing? So, yeah, like, so Megan said, we're going to be, like, we're trying to be very respectful of, like, the indigenous aspect of the culture, thing like that. We're going to talk about those things. I don't like saying the word in general, like, even the, the, the SW word. That's just me. It freaks me out. But I am doing a place that is actually t- called Skinwalker Ranch today. So right. it's weird, but I'm going to actually, I'm actually refer to it as Sherman Ranch when I cover it. And mine might be a two-parter oh wow so all right so let's dive in all right so what exactly are skinwalkers now before i did this research i thought of them as something a little different than what they actually are i thought they were already some sort of creature that could take form in of another creature or human but then i was researching and i found a more specific explanation In the Navajo culture, a skinwalker is a bad witch of sorts that has the ability to shapeshift into an animal or even possess an animal. I've even heard that they can shapeshift into other humans as well. But in most places I looked, it just said animals. So the Navajo word for skinwalker is not to be spoken out loud, but I shall spell it out for you. Okay. It is spelled Y-double-E space N-double-A-L-D-L-double-O-S-H-double-I. So that's that's the the indigenous name of it? Yes. Okay. Which translates, with it, he goes on all fours. Oh, okay. Interesting. So today I'm going to share with you two supposed true experiences people have had involving skinwalkers. The first story I'm going to share with you uses the actual Navajo word, but I'll be using skinwalker in its place. Okay. I found this person's experience on CVLT. Oh, Dana, what does CVLT stand for? What's CVLT? What is it? CVLT Nation, but I don't even know what that means. I'll look it up real quick. Okay. It's like, it's a, I think it's Cult Nation. C-V-L-T? Yeah. What's the, what's the V for? It's a weird, it's a weird U. Like churches, is like churches, that band. Oh. Oh. Okay. So it's on this national online magazine. Yes, but I just didn't know what the C-V-L-T stood for. No worries. Look it up. We're good. Okay. Okay. So so is it Cult Nation? I'm going to say yes. All right. So I found this person's experience on C-V-L-T Nation, or maybe it's pronounced Cult Nation. I don't know. And That's it goes what? a little something like this. I'm keeping this all in. <laughs> my grandmother on my mother's side has always been very superstitious, for lack of a better word. She's not religious, but she does believe in a lot of paranormal stuff. Her mother was full-blooded Navajo, and her father was Irish. Either way, she'd never been anywhere east of of Montana, and she grew up in Nevada. One year, when I was in grade school, we went to visit her. 
most of the visit was pretty uneventful. Typical boring old people stuff, except she always kept her curtains drawn. And she would always peek out of the window. And when someone would ask what she was doing, she would simply reply, the skinwalker is watching me. This went on for nearly the entire visit until a few days before we were due to leave, my grandma and my then baby brother, he's 19 now, were in the front yard that evening planting flowers when all of a sudden my grandmother starts shouting, insert little brother's name here, get away from that creature, it's not safe. Of course, being in Nevada, we all assumed that my brother had found a scorpion or a rattlesnake. So we all run outside to see my grandmother clutching my little brother and shaking in terror against the side of the house. Standing out in the yard was a large, black, Great Dane-sized dog. It was staring at my grandmother with an intensity I'd never seen before. It looked up at us, gave a little huff, and bounded off. I don't remember if it moved unusually fast or not, but I do remember it had really deep yellow eyes. When my mother asked my grandmother what had happened, she kept repeating, The skinwalker has found me. She moved a couple weeks after that. So I don't know what that one was. I mean, they live in an area where I guess they would be able to differentiate, you know, a wolf or. Yeah. Are there wolves there? Wolves. Probably. Where are they? Where were they? Nevada? Nevada. Nevada? Nevada. I always, I always say that state wrong. Yeah, there there has to be like not even like that. There, it's there. It's a desert area, so there's they, they have to know like the, yeah, the area of like the the animals that are there. That's true. And That's true. I mean, we house. even have we even have coyotes where like I live, and even where I work, where it, you would never expect a coyote to be. So yeah, I I guess it's we, possible. We've infringed on their land. So they're like, ha ha, here we go. Exactly. And then the next story I have is an experience, experience from Frances T. In 1978, Frances and her family moved from Wyoming to Arizona. In the summertime, a few years after moving, the family decided to take their pickup truck back to Wyoming to visit some old friends. On this trip, were Frances, who was 20 at the time, her mother, father, and younger brother. They took Route 163, which goes through the Navajo Reservation, something her Navajo friend had warned her against doing, especially during the dark hours, because odd things tend to happen in that area. The family set out on their trip and experienced nothing odd along the way. But their trip back home took a turn no one expected. They're back in the truck now. Dad's driving. Frances is sitting in the middle of her father and mother, and her little brother enjoyed the bed of the truck to himself. It's very dark and quite late, around 10 p.m., when the family yet again finds themselves on Route 163. 
Because the moon is invisible this evening, the family finds it hard to see much beyond the headlights of the truck. But they move along. The seconds turn into minutes, which turn into hours. And they find themselves together, yet very much alone, on this long stretch of road. I like the, I like the description. Thank you. Eventually, though, Francis's dad notices another vehicle behind them. And Frances shares her comfort in seeing the other car as it goes in and out of view along the hills and crests. If anything were to happen, at least they would have somebody not too far behind them to help, right? It's not looking like it may... No, it's now looking like it may rain. Nope. (laughs) Nope. And since the little brother is in the back of the truck, they decide it's probably a good idea to get him back in the cab before the rain begins to fall. So they open the back window of the cab and he wriggles through and placed himself between Francis and their mother. When Francis closes the window, she's again comforted to see the lights of the car behind them. Hmm? Her dad says they'll probably cross paths in town of Kayanta. I hope I'm saying that town right where they'd probably have to refuel as well. Francis kept watching as they disappeared behind a hill and kept watching them for them to reappear as they had done so many times before. But this time they didn't come back up. Why would they stop in an area, though, that had nothing around them? Mm. In the middle of the pitch black night with an impending storm looming in the distance. Her dad reassured her that sometimes people just do strange things when driving. Also, since it was a long stretch of road, maybe they needed to stretch their legs. In the distance was a sharp bend. And Francis's father slows down the truck to make the turn safely and with ease. And when he does this, she notices the atmosphere has completely changed. She glances out the passenger window. And at the same time, her mother lets out a scream, followed by her dad yelling, Jesus Christ, what the hell is that? Thinking with haste, she reaches over to the door, pushes lock, Hmm. and held on to the door with her brother directly behind her back, which was now reaching over him. She, nor her brother, could see what their parents had witnessed, but knew it was something terrifying by the look on her dad's face. Her mother is now screaming in Japanese as they make it around the bend with a scarily steep drop-off that led into a ditch. Her dad is now breaking hard to avoid them veering off the road. And as they come to a screeching stop, from below in the ditch, something is jumping out directly at the side of the truck. No! Thank you! They could now clearly see what it was. No, I couldn't clearly see. My eyes would be screwed shut. I think if I'm veering off the road in general, like if I'm not driving, my eyes are going to be screwed shut. I say, go limp noodle. Because it's like, if I think about a crash especially, I always try to be like, go limp. Because they say you're less likely to break things if you're not. Same. Yes. So I'd be limp and eyes closed. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I would be doing the same thing. 
but they're slowing down and they can see what this creature is now. It was, quote, black and hairy and was eye level with the passengers of the cab. Although it looked like some sort of creature, it had on clothing. Francis says, it had on a white and blue checked shirt and long pants, I think jeans. Its arms were raised over its head, almost touching the top of the cab. It looked like a hairy man or a hairy animal in man's clothing. But it didn't look like an ape or anything like that. Its eyes were yellow and its mouth was open. It looked at them for a few seconds before their dad got them the hell out of there. When they finally made it to Kayenta, they checked their car for any damage or any proof of what they had witnessed. But they could find nothing at all. Also, they were in town for about 20 minutes and hadn't noticed the car that had been behind them for all that time. Oh, yeah. And just like that, the nightmare was over. Well, almost. A few nights after arriving back home, Frances and her brother both woke up around 11 p.m. to the sound of drums. She and her brother peeked out of his window into their fenced-in backyard. Nothing was there, and they couldn't see anything. Even past the fence, there was a forest, and nothing could be seen. But they could still hear the drumming, and it was getting louder. And then they noticed three or four men just beyond the fence. They seemed to be trying to climb over the fence. When they were unsuccessful, then, I know, then the men began to chant. (gasps) Nope. That would terrify me. Needless to say, she and her brother slept in the same room that night. After this incident, she spoke with her Navajo friend who told her, although it's unusual for skinwalkers to prey on non-natives, she did think that what they came across that night on the road and then the night in their backyard was indeed an encounter with skinwalkers. When Frances asked her friend why her family, she pondered the question and replied, their family held a lot of power and that was something that they craved. Oh. Now, I'm not sure what type of power she was referring to, but Frances did mention her family was very sensitive to the paranormal, so maybe they were referring to their sensitivities. Okay. But I don't know. That's what I thought. Her friend later blessed their home, their property, property, and their car. They have not had any skinwalker encounters since the blessing. And that's that, Dana Lee. Ah. I've heard, obviously, about them. And the one thing I've heard about them is, like, they, they, what made it different? I always get them confused with another topic that. Same. I think I know. Yeah. But then as I was researching my thing, I definitely came upon more clarity. And then I think yours, too, how basically it was, like, a shaman or, like, a magic practicer who 
goes bad instead of good and then weird things happen so that was i think like the mind control aspect was really weird like getting into because like i think the shifting into an animal creature is very on par with like werewolf lore and stuff like that Mm -hmm. which that doesn't that it it scares me but i think it's like more acceptable in my mind i don't know why but it is then i think it's like the mind control and that aspect that yeah so yeah what if they're like oh you're not seeing anything at all and you're like what do you mean i am seeing you know it's like how because i control my mind and they're thinking i'm not seeing certain things yeah i don't know i do believe that they are powerful entities that i don't want to mess with or a bit. So what do you think, Megan? Yeah, there's definitely creepy stuff out there. And I remember somebody talking about this creature as a... What did they talk about it as? Like, almost like a mythical creature. And it was... The, the Navajo... What am I trying to say? They, they basically said that, no, this is something very real to the Navajo people. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. So by say, calling it like a mythical creature or something, what am I, Dana, what am I looking for? No, so you're saying it's not along the lines of like Bigfoot or things like that that don't have the cultural relevance to a, a culture. To Thank the Navajo you. And it is something legit and so we treat it as such. Exactly. Not, yeah. And so I don't know exactly what it is but I will be like, yeah, it's, if you if you say so and you are and you say that, then absolutely. I respect I be- that. I respect that. I believe that. I respect that in a terrifyingly scared manner. Oh, yeah. Same. Thank you for wording that beautifully when I could not. No worries. Get my words out. We were recording this earlier in the day. And like I said, I slept so well last night that I was like, I could sleep longer. Honestly, uh, I don't think I got enough rest. Enough- <laughs> Because I allowed Story to come in and sleep with us, and I never allow them to sleep in the bed with us. But she never meows at the door, but she kept meowing and, like, pawing at the door. So I'm like, she must really need something. So I opened the door, and I let her in. And like I said, I can't sleep when something else is in the bed. And then I had, like, a little lamp on that kept me on, that kept me up, too, you know? I, I like yeah. it completely dark. But uh, so I'm, I'm working with what I've got. And thankfully, I have Dana to help me out with what I don't got. There you go. We'll be complimentary. <laughs> okay, so my topic, obviously, is something that I actually chose back in January. But I kept having put on the back burner for one reason or another. But it's such a creepy, haunting story that I need to believe that not all of it is true. Otherwise, like you last night, I won't be able to sleep well enough. I'm talking about one place in particular and the events that took place and some say continue to take place there. And it goes to prove the point that Abby was making that maybe we need to tell her our topic because once again, we veered dangerously close to one another this week. But but we're living on the edge, Dana. There you go. So I'm discussing Skinwalker Ranch, but since I strongly dislike using that term, I'll be referring it to the property as the Sherman Ranch. And before I get in, trigger warning, there is a lot of talk about animal death and animal gore in this one. So, listener 
Discretion is advised. Thank you. I was like, question? So, yeah. So, the Sherman Ranch is a plot of land that is approximately 512 acres in size, and it's located southeast of Ballard, Utah, in the Uinta County, near the Uinta Basin. Okay. And it is known to have had countless UFO and other paranormal activity and sightings. Ooh. So, we're going to go back. So, so, Dana, would you ever go there? Oh, well, well I guess I'll hear the story and then I'll ask you. Oh, no. So, even if I wanted to go, I'll make a point. Even if I wanted to go there now, it's impossible to go there now. Because the roads are, like, blocked off. Everything's fenced in with, like, posted uh, no trespassing signs everywhere. So, it's, like, a fully fortress area. Like, they say, no, you can't just, like, stumble into it. So, yeah, no, it is, like, closed off. Yeah, so we'll get into that. We'll get into that probably more so in part two, but we'll get into that. Like I said, this is a lot of information. I was typing it out, and I was like, I don't know if I'll be able to get all of it covered in a way that will be nourishing enough. (laughs) Yeah, we need to be nourished. Yes. So Terry and Gwen Sherman moved to the ranch in the fall of 1994 with their teenage son, and their 10-year-old daughter. So the Shermans, which is the branch is like known for them, they only lived there for two years as a family. The previous owners had actually owned the land since the 1930s. And they lived there from the 30s until they sold it to the Shermans. So before then, it was only this one family. So the 30s through to when? 1994, so like 64 years this family lived there beforehand. Okay. And the Shermans moved in. They wanted to have a simple life for them and their children and the cattle they owned. So they said we can use a farming area, which would be great, kind of like a simpler, like slower means of living. But after experiencing countless experiences with the unknown, they only lasted two years before hightailing it out of there. Like I said, the previous owners were the Myers family, which were Kenneth and Edith, who owned the land from 1934 to 1964. But when the Shermans moved in, they were ready to do some serious remodeling and fixing up because the space kind of been left to a little disarray over the time because it wasn't being fully lived in. So they owned the land but probably weren't living there for a good while, like Kenneth and Edith. Yeah. And so here are some things to note that the Shermans noticed when they moved into the property. They said it had been practically fortified. Doors and windows were bolted shut, and there were metal bars in all the windows. And this is like a cattle ranch? Mm-hmm. On like 500-something acres, so it's not like, you know, in a dangerous neighborhood where there are like, yeah, or they're not like, it's not during wartime where it's like, okay, I gotta be worried about like, Robbery, yeah, bandits type thing, and there were chains on both sides of the houses, which they said must have been used to keep guard dogs. And there was also a clause in the purchase of the land and property that if the Shermans wanted to dig on the property, they had to first notify the Myers family. What? Which I mean sounds creepy in retrospect, but I wonder if it's almost like. If you try, if you find anything, like, worthwhile, like, we want in on it, too, as, like, the previous owners of the land. Oh, but, okay. My first I mean, thought went to, like, odd. Be like, 
you know, if you're going to dig, get, let us know. Yeah, my first thought went to, like, them bodies. Uh, bodies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so do I get that. But it's still very odd request because it's like, I own this land now. Why do I have to tell you if I'm going to dig on it? Right. You know? I-, I feel like once you've sold it. That's you- it. You've relinquished your your claim. Any, any ties to it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you can still be held liable for certain things that were undisclosed, maybe. But, like, you can't be like, if you want to dig, let us know first. It's like, no, I don't have to. I'm not contractually ba- bound. But I guess they were because there was a clause in the purchase. So they were bound, I guess. Hmm. Soon after moving in, Terry, Gwen, the children, and Terry's father are all at the ranch one evening when they see a dog-like creature coming over the crest and towards them. As it got closer to them, it began to take on more of an interest in the family, not hesitating coming closer. This made them think that this wolf-like creature was tame or maybe belonged to someone nearby as a pet. But as they were able to get a better look at it, they realized that it was not a normal wolf. It was huge and came up to the chest of the two men, who were both over six feet tall. It had gray fur and piercing blue eyes and large muscles. Oh, God. It was so tame that it even allowed the family to pet it. Which I know is like a dream come true true for you, petting a wild animal. Yes, still. But as if a switch was flipped to the animal, it suddenly stopped and turn and ran towards a calf that was nearby that was too curious and attacked them. Oh my god, that's horrifying. When Terry and his father ran over to try to beat the beast off to scare it away, they were unsuccessful in fighting it off. Like fight like physically fighting it off. So Terry said, Go grab my gun to his son. And he shot the wolf-like creature at point-blank range. But the beast was as unconcerned with the shots as if they were, like, punches to him. Oh. Yeah. And they continued to try to beat him, beat the wolf away. But the wolf was unbothered until he finally released the calf and turned to make eye contact with the family again. Oh, my God. Staring them down, showing no signs of being hurt. He's like, what the f*** do you want? And he moved further back, but still watched them as he backed away. Terry had his son go grab another gun. And even shooting the wolf from as close to 40 yards away, the wolf was still just watching them, unbothered and unharmed. So Terry shot the wolf once more claiming that he actually saw, like, a flesh room on it. And still, the wolf showed indifference to both the shooting and the people, and it turned around and walked away from the area. Oh, my God. Terry's like, no, no, no. We need to follow this wolf to make sure that it's dealt with so it won't cause any trouble with the calf or us in the future because (laughs) it's obviously... Are they... Are they shooting this thing with, like, a pellet gun? Like, what is happening? No, I... I, They told me what kind of gun it was. They they told me. I spoke to Terry. (laughs) (laughs) No, I had heard what kind of gun it was, but I I was like, guns are guns. I hate them. I think one was, like... I think 
he the, the bigger one he had like a rifle though so it was like a big a big boy holy crap so terry and his son said nope we're not gonna you know let him go because what if he's a rep what if he's a Obviously, they have cattle. They need to protect their cattle. This is their livelihood. So they go to follow it to make sure that it's dealt with so it wouldn't cause trouble in the future. But the beast was too fast and made it to the tree limb before they could. So they followed the tracks of the creature for about a mile. Wow. Until the tracks just disappeared. Wow. And the ground was soft. So there was no, like, cutoff areas What would show, like, it stepped into this, and the tracks aren't fought, like fought, like tracks just stopped, and the area that was like it was in was no different from the areas beforehand that showed the tracks clearly. They just disappeared. That's crazy. Now, I just wanted to say the wolf sounded in my mind. It sounded beautiful until you said it was muscular, <laughs> and then it got really creepy. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I can see that. When I said that to said muscular, I said, like, how big is it? Like, I mean, obviously, I guess, like, all, like, dog-like things, like, Ferris is muscular, too, I guess, in some ways, so. Right, but I'm picturing, like, bulbous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was that, but still, it was an odd creature, though. They literally continued to look for this creature until the sun started to set in the sky. They were, also- like. They have to be careful, too, because they have children. Yeah, they have a t- teenager and a 10-year-old. Um, that wouldn't be the last time they would see this wolf and others like it. In weeks to follow the original sighting, they would continue to see some wolves and creatures, but nothing like that first original sighting. However, the wolves were soon replaced by other strange creatures and happenings on the ranch. While living there, the Shermans found that things would start to go missing or replaced, or misplaced, not replaced, missing or misplaced. And this is not just like some random household items like, oh, my, my, my towel's missing or my socks are missing because those are missing all the time. You know, we know that. It was said that Terry would be somewhere and working and he would leave the area for just a short amount of time and large farm equipment would be missing. An example they gave was a 70-pound post digger. And these are the things like dig the holes for posts for fencing to go in. Yeah. So 70-pound post digger was just missing. He'd just been using it, and he's like, where the heck how did it go? But this item, and like many of the other items that were missing, was eventually found. But it wasn't just about retracing your steps or asking people if they had seen or moved the machine. No. This piece of farm equipment was found 20 feet off the ground in a tree. What? With no clue or sign as to how it got there. That is wild. Now, this kind of, like, makes the German family start to, you know, look up into the sky, look up more to see if there was anything else that they should be taking a look at above them. Now, this phenomena, the kind of the bane of their existence and some of the most reported sightings of strange lights in the sky and the crafts they were connected to. One night, Terry was out with his son and his nephew when they noticed strange lights off in the distance on his land. They said it looked like white headlights and red taillights, which reminds me of your story earlier. 
Oh. Was the car following them? Remember? Yeah. And they at first simply assumed it was an RV, which in turn would be trespassing on their land if it was indeed an RV. So Terry and the boy started over to walk or to go toward that area, just in front of the vehicle. Hey, private land, you can't be here. But as they made their way closer, the lights were slowly and silently moving away from them. Mm. So it's like if it's an RV, if it was an RV, you could hear it, you know? Right. When they got even closer, the light suddenly and without warning shot nearly 50 feet into the air. And when they were able to see it above them, they released, they were able to see the craft that they said was there as well. And they said it was, it was more akin to a fridge than an RV. Fridge? They said, how does a fridge look different than an RV? They're both like rectangular boxes. Is it smaller than an RV? Either way. Right. And like the fridge. lights, lights coming from a fridge. I mean, like, I guess the shape of it is in the air. Like, okay, it's on an RV, obviously. It's like a floating fridge. And I said that it's a very odd description, but, you know. Frozen, they said they watched the object move off into the sky before disappearing into the night. And it says, feeling that there was more to the entire thing, the Shermans were suspicious that maybe it wasn't just them happening upon random things, but maybe it was something more to the land, the ranches on itself. And the Uninta Basin is an area known for unusual happenings. And the Shermans would soon find out the land they lived on had deeper ties to the strangeness than they originally knew. Some may even say it was cursed. The Utes were the indigenous people of the area and regarded the land or part of the land on the ranch as Skinwalker Ridge. And they they viewed it as a dangerous piece of land, veering into the supernatural and cursed. And as you said in your part, the topic of the skinwalkers is something that is inherently tied to the indigenous tribe. So I kind of want to tread carefully when I'm throwing around the words cursed in association with that. But there are many ties to those practices and the darkness of the area. And there were even published reports back in 1911 with headlines that said, rumblings heard in Uninta Basin. Strange noises cause new settlers much uneasy- uneasiness. The article goes on to discuss the strange noises that were heard in the area, resembling thunder, and the people were hearing them day and night, summer and winter, for years. And since then, many have tried to give the explanation that this was rocks shifting on the fault lines near near this area, which does make sense, as we are more aware of like geography and the workings of the land today, but still is something that was noticed back in the early 1900s. And since the 1950s, there have been over 1,000 or there have been over 1,000 reports in that area of UFO sightings, cattle mutilations, and extraterrestrial encounters, as well as a handful of Sasquatch and poltergeist encounters over the year. So Udinta County became a hot spot of these encounters, and Terry Sherman himself knew that firsthand. Since all this had happened, he had been taken to patrolling the land at night to make sure nothing strange would happen that would affect his family. He often said that he saw strange lights in quick passage, but one wintry night he claimed that he saw a craft unlike anything he had seen before. It was hovering 30 feet off the ground, and it was pitch black and dead silent. 
when a flashing of series of multicolored lights were being shown from it onto the ground, Terry said it looked as though it was looking for something. So he hid to avoid detection. (laughs) Not me. However, he made the mistake of stretching at one point. And I'm assuming Terry was over the age of 30 because when he stretched, it made the snap, crackle, and pop sounds. (laughs) All these make. And the object zoned in on it immediately. The object turned its lights off, turned towards him, and then slowly went off in the other direction. A few weeks later, Gwen said she experienced the same object following her as she was driving. And it caused her to rush home with the objects falling behind her. And when she went inside the house, she saw the object fly over the house and into the distance. An hour later, Gwen looked outside and saw the RV fridge from before (laughs) was there on the property. And apparently, she could see inside of it. Ooh. Apparently, she saw a seven-foot-tall figure wearing a black uniform and headgear. I said, men in black, is this you? Standing in a lit doorway, she said she felt it was staring back at her. Oh, my God. She was a smart one and simply closed the blinds and said, not today, Satan. (laughs) And the next day, the only sign that anything had been there or anything that had happened was large footprints. Ooh, I wonder what kind of footprints they were. If they were actually like feet or yeah. shoe, you know, or like either I don't way. Know. I hate it. Terry and Gwen would also see large orange glowing orbs hovering silently about a mile away. And this is something they saw often from different angles. And they said, depending on the angle you're looking at it, it would like either be like oblong or shorter. But from the point of their house, it was like perfect perfectly spherical and he would look through it through his night scope on his right rifle and one night so this orange orb is something we see frequently one night terry's looking at this orange orb and he notices in the middle of it there's a blue circle and the more he stares at the more he realizes that he's seeing a blue sunny day in the middle of a star-filled night. What? So he's like, oh my god, is this some kind of portal where the crafts are coming through? But that was the last time he'd see something like this. That is so bizarre. Mm-hmm. And now we're getting more into the object of my trigger warnings with the animals. Because minus the wolf incident in the beginning of when they moved in, most of the events that took place on the ranch never caused harm to the Sherman family or their livestock until it began to. One day, after a particularly nasty storm, a snowstorm, Terry realized that one of the cattle was missing. So he goes off to track it, and he follows the tracks, and they suddenly stop. No signs of her tracks or any predator's tracks were nearby. She was never found. And she was one of the first of five cows to go missing that winter alone. 
Now, when spring came in 1985, it only brought more horror when now instead of the cows simply going missing, they would be found dead in the most off-putting ways with lower parts of their bodies missing in a precise, almost surgical way with a distinct lack of blood. My God, that is so sad and also so bizarre. Like you hear about those things and you're just like, how and why and what? Yeah, because it's like the surgical aspect of it and the lack of blood. It's so weird. Thing. It's not like a creature. Like if you look at, if you think like a like a wild creature, like eating, you know, yeah. something. it's not going to be precise and surgical. There's going to be blood. It's going to be messy. Right. But this continued until Terry began to see a pattern with bad weather, yellow lights in the sky, and the next morning finding a dead or mutilated cow. And he also made a point to note that not only do the carcasses have surgical precision and the lack of blood, they also took a strong, a strangely longer time to decompose than normal cows that had died. And they often, there also, often was a strange brown liquid near the side of the death. One time, Terry touched it. And I said, why, Terry? And he said it was, it was gel-like and cold, but I don't know why. He was like, okay, what does it feel like? And then he must have maybe gone on with his, like, daily chores because he couldn't collect it because by the time he went to try to collect it, it had evaporated. Oh. There was also strange sound beginning to be heard at night here and large holes in the ground found after floating lights had been in the area just the night, just the night before. And there had been impressions in the grass and the land, which I'm assuming is akin to crop circles. And Terry also began to hear voices sometimes. Oh, my God. And I and talking in the language or words he didn't quite understand. I said, are you having a break from reality, Terry? What is this? Uh, and besides the orange and yellow orbs, red orbs and blue orbs were starting to see around the area moving around. and. It, quote, usually signaled trouble, and it would observe Terry and his activities. And in April of 1995, Terry's dog started to track and try to attack the blue or- a blue orb as it floated above him and the dogs, almost taunting the dogs. And the dogs followed the orb into the tree line where it went out of sight until Terry heard a strange yelp from the dogs and silence. When he went to investigate the next morning, the dogs didn't return. He found three large brown circles of burnt grass and the remains of the dog with a mess in the middle of them. That's so bizarre. Yeah. Another time, Terry and Gwen observed a blue orb that was three times the size of a baseball. And it had like a hard shell-like exterior. It almost looked like it was glass keeping the blue liquid inside that was swirling around, almost like a boiling aspect. And it said it emitted a sound that was akin to electricity crackling. And it seemed to also affect the electricity in the house at the same time. And they said looking at this orb produced a feeling of anxiety in them that surpassed what they had thought to be normal, as though it was an artificial producing emotion. After the dogs died, the chairman said, that's it. No, we're going to go public. It's time to leave. 
And in the 1996 Deseret News, there was an article published about it. Terry thought that maybe going forward, even though it would do away with his wanted privacy and anonymity, would maybe deter those who were doing it. It was like either pranksters or even the space people, if they're following him, I guess, or the extraterrestrials, if they somehow know what's happening, maybe they'll stop. But it turned to have the opposite effect because it drew more attention to the land and many people flocked to the area to see if they too would experience something truly unexplainable. Terry turned most of them away, but there was a few that he would allow onto the land, and oftentimes they came away with their own sightings and experiences on the land. On September 5th of that same year, the Sherman family sold the land to Robert Bigelow, and the Sherman family sold it for less than they had purchased it. So it wasn't even what they came forward with, like, hey, we'll make big bucks and sell it. Right. Also, I have a clip of the uh, Deseret article. And talking about what they had seen. And I can, I can tell you more about that. It says, you know, that for a long time, we wondered what we were seeing. If it was something to do with a top secret project, said Terry Sherman. I don't re know really what to think about it. During the past 15 months, a small box-like craft, white light, and a 40-foot long object in a huge ship size. They've seen the craft emit a wavy red way of light, light beams, as if it flies along. They've seen other airborne lights, some of which have emerged from orange circular doorways that seem to appear midair. So the mystery circles, three circles about, and says the flattened grass, eight feet across, and then in a triangular pattern, about 30 feet from each other. And then when he heard and talks about more so, when he heard the male voices speaking an unfamiliar language, and the voices seemed to be coming about... 25, 25 feet above him. Above him? Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. And it's like he couldn't see a thing. The dogs were frantic when it happened and they barked and growled before running back to the ranch house. Just imagine how scary that would be. Like you're on a nighttime walk and you hear voices, scary enough, but then you realize they're above your head? No. Voices. 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 And talking away you don't in a language you don't know. It's like, nope, nope, I'm done. So they sold that they sold it in September. So the article came out in June. By September it was sold to Robert Bigelow. And they sold it for less than they purchased it, which is saying something because Robert Bigelow is a billionaire. Wow. Like yeah, so he founded the National Institute for Discovery Science or NIDS or NIDSI for short. Which is was founded a year prior to his purchase of the of the ranch for the sole purpose of scientific research on paranormal topics. So he was like, Yep, I'm buying because this is what I'm into. Yeah, yeah. The Shermans moved about twenty miles away, but Terry couldn't put it all behind him and he wanted to still find answers. So he actually volunteered to work there as the ranch manager, alongside those that NIDS had brought along to help investigate the land. So in September of 1996, the research team arrived on the land, and unlike the Shermans, they did not live on the land, but spent a lot of time there. The first day there, they saw the three large circles of the dead grass where the dogs died, surrounded by tall, healthy grass. They saw the bodies of the cows that were still there, and the strange spots on the land that were attributed to the light orbs. 
these were all the things that Terry had said had happened, but the team had yet to see anything firsthand themselves. Until one night, a bright light was seen hovering over the land and was seen by four of the researchers. The light hovered in the sky before dipping below the tree line and then returning back up to the sky. There was even photographs taken, but they said the photographs failed to properly portray the actual brightness of the object, which on one hand, I can kind of see as a cop-out, like, oh, it's just pictures, but they're not that good. But on the other hand, it's like, have you ever tried to take a picture of the moon? Yeah, like, that's that- exactly what I was going to say. And, like, nothing looks good. It's like, no, no, it's, I can see it with my eyes. It looks... So, on one hand, yeah, it was the 90s, but this is the product of a billionaire. So, like, how good was the equipment by, so, like, by today's standard, which is just the thought I had. Mm-hmm. And none of the people that saw the light recognized it as anything they'd ever seen before. Mm-hmm. So, they, so, they started to believe, like, yeah, Terry's right. Something is really weird happening here. Fast forward to March of the next year, so the 1997, and the encounters become even more strange. On March 10th, a calf was found dead with most of its organs and missing and blood removed with a sense of dismemberment. The thing is, this calf had just been seen 45 minutes ago when it was tagged. Oh, my gosh. So how could something of that magnitude happen? in such a short span of time without it being heard or seen by anyone else. Right, right. So March 12th, dogs owned by the team were barking and howling. So Terry, along with three other researchers, got into a truck to drive around and investigate. Suddenly, the headlights came upon what was described as a giant creature. Terry said it it looked like it weighed more than 400 pounds and it had yellow eyes. That reflected the headlights, like your story. So Terry, being Terry, went and shot the creature, and the eyes disappeared. The men assumed that it had hit the creature and had fallen. But when they went to investigate it, they did not find the creature where it should have fallen. But then Terry saw it, or another similar creature, nearby and shot again. At at a distance that was akin to point-blank range. And once again, no body was found. So Terry and the men spent another two hours looking for any sign of the creature, finding nothing until they found two sets of oval-shaped prints in the snow about 20 feet away from one another, as if the creatures were walking side by side. One of the prints showed that at least one of them had two claws on the feet that were about six inches in diameter, and they said it was as if it was a huge bird of prey bird yeah like that's how it was like wow now the next incident happened in april and it was with terry and gwen again they were driving by an enclosure on the property where their prize bulls were still being held after the sale and the move i'm gonna call it right now and say gwen jinxed it because she said you know what It'd be a shame if anything happened to the bulls. Oh, yeah. She jinxed it. (laughs) And 45 minutes later, they returned by, and the bulls were missing. Perry immediately went to find them. The four bulls were actually found, and they had gotten into a trailer somehow, with both signs of how they got able to get in this trailer, and were standing arranged in almost a hypnotic state. 
Oh, okay. I have a question. Was the trailer something that the family owned or that they owned or was it? It was on the property. It was a trailer that was on the property already. Oh. The bulls got into this property. They got out of their enclosure somehow and into this trailer. Okay. No one knows how these four bulls got into the trailer and how they're in this nearly hypnotic state. So Terry calls out to Gwen. He's like, hey, I found them. And he hits the door to like let his wife know, here we are. And hitting the metal door seems to break a hypnosis that the bulls have been under. And they begin to freak out. And they break their way out of the trailer. Like, destroying it. They're like, we gotta get out. Not, not trying, but like, they, they're like, oh my god, what's happening? So the bulls are like, we're enclosed. This one place where us to be. So they break out of the trailer. Wow. The nids wasn't there when it all happened. But they came to investigate soon after. And they were able to discover that, yeah, not only have the bulls been inside the trailer, like Terry said, but the bars that were on the enclosure where the bulls were, were magnetized, especially the one closest to the trailer. And the magnetization slowly faded over the passage of time. Oh. So, like, they weren't normally magnetized, but but after this event, the, the bars closest to the trailer where the, where the bulls somehow got in shown signs of mag- magnetization. That is bizarre. And that is where I will leave you for this. Dana, I absolutely loved this. That is so intriguing. And next week, I will continue on with the events that happen at Sherman Ranch and where it stands today. I'm so excited to hear it, Dane. Mm-hmm. Thank you. You're welcome. And thank you, dear, dear listeners, for listening to us. And being on this journey with us as we discuss the strange and unknown. If you have anything you want to add or follow us or talk to us, you can find us on Instagram at Twitter at Scary Sisters Pod. And you can email us if you have any questions, concerns, comments, or stories of your own to share at Scary Sisters Pod at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and chatting with you all. It's so much fun. And until then, until next week. Stay safe and stay spooky. Love you. Bye. Bye.